Hello, everyone, and welcome to this edition of After the Final Whistle. I am your host, Brad Clear. It is Friday, January 10th. Loaded show coming at you today. We're going to be talking about the head coaching hires in the NFL coaching carousel, Andre Drummond's trade market, Kevin Love's trade market, Joel Embiid's injury, Tua declaring for the draft, a loaded show. So let's just dive right into it. First coach I want to discuss here, Dallas Cowboys hiring Mike McCarthy, the head coach, the new head coach of the Dallas Cowboys to a five-year contract. This was a safe and solid hire. It was the most evolved but similar version the Cowboys could get to Jason Garrett. Um, a very safe hire. McCarthy did a very good job in playing the media game here in the sense of coming across as a coach desiring to change and improve between his makeshift coaching staff, looking at game tape and trends and analytics throughout this season, and wanting a 14-person football technology department. And, you know, it's one thing to say these things and to be, you know, actually showing it. Actions speak louder than words. And, you know, we'll see if this commitment to analytics and trends and evolved decision-making, if that actually ends up being something that McCarthy will stick to, and he'll stick to the process and hopefully ultimately lead to results um, when the going gets tough. We'll see if that action or these words actually turn into action. Um, Look, we can't sugarcoat it here with McCarthy. McCarthy's tenure with the Cowboys ended poorly. Um, There were significant flaws that needed to be fixed. There's an argument that he did not win enough with Aaron Rodgers in his prime um, and was someone who really needed a change of scenery and needed to revamp his coaching ways and evolve, point blank. There was not a good ending. He had flaws he needed to fix. And from the Cowboys' standpoint, it's understandable, you know, seeing how this coach is desiring to improve and is investing heavily in progressing his decision-making and use of analytics and data and evolving with the times in the modern NFL but this is a coach who has championship experience, has won Super Bowl, or has won Super Bowls, has coached Hall of Fame quarterbacks in Brett Favre and Aaron Rodgers, significant playoff experience, significant head coaching experience. Now, could they have done better? Absolutely. Lincoln Riley, Matt Rule, this was a very safe hire. They went for a guy who, they look at this roster and they see a roster, justifiably so, with a ton of talent on both sides of the ball who with a good coach is going to lead this team to an easy playoff uh, berth and division victory every year. They were still second in offensive DVOA last year. And I think what the Cowboys did is they saw someone who has significant playoff experience, who has worked with high-level quarterbacks before, who will ensure that this offense runs through its talented quarterback. Through Dak Prescott, who is a very, 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 very good quarterback. Pay the man. And that offense is going to run through Dak Prescott with Mike McCarthy at the helm. Additionally, you know, not a ton of coaches, you know, would have been all that thrilled with keeping, you know, other individuals who were previously on the staff in place. You know, Kellen Moore, the offensive coordinator, he decided to stay. Now they did hire Jim Tom Sula to be the defensive line coach. Um, they hired their defensive coordinator um, from the Saints. So McCarthy did get to make some moves there, but you know there were some individuals that Jerry Jones wanted to keep in place on this staff. And again, it is as safe a hire as they could have made. It is a solid hire. 
it will accentuate what needs to be accentuated within this team, which is going through their very talented quarterback. The talent on this team for the Dallas Cowboys, both sides of the ball, this is a team who you put a good coach at the helm, this team is going to succeed and win the division with no issue. They were still second in offensive DVOA this past season. This is a very good team. There is no reason this team, well, the reason is Jason Garrett, but with a good coach, there's no reason this team should not win the division year in and year out in this weak division with the Dave Gettleman-run New York Giants, with the Washington Redskins, and the Eagles having a down season. And now we're going to run into cap problems, and we'll see what happens moving forward. Not enough young talent there. They have to go youthful this offseason with getting a lot of the players into the draft. This division is there for the Dallas Cowboys with no issue. There is so much talent there. And I really, really want to see if all of this talk from Mike McCarthy being an individual who is, you know, he's desiring to improve, obviously. Recognize the importance to evolve, to um, reverse perceptions and notions of him, and to become an attractive head coaching candidate for this offseason. Got himself the best gig that was out there, in my opinion. It is one thing to talk about these things that I just mentioned, and I'm really intrigued to see if he truly is a changed coach and is someone who has evolved with the times as far as his decision-making and game-planning is concerned and scheming is concerned. Overall, I think this is a good hire for the Dallas Cowboys. I think, again, they could have done better, but it is still a solid hire. And I'm very intrigued to see McCarthy moving forward this season. Now, moving along to the other NFC East team that just made their coaching hire, the most uh, unexpected coaching hire, Joe Judge, the new head coach of the New York Giants. I think there's a lot of takeaways here. First off, obviously, we look at Joe Judge, special teams coach, Wide receivers coach for the Patriots this past year. Wide receivers coach is not something to write home about after the season the wide receiver core just had for the Patriots this past season. We know that Bill Belichick took him under his wing, recognized that he would be a future head coach, taught him you know, ways of how to build a program, how to be a head coach, and had it not been for the New York Giants, Joe Judge would likely be today the newly hired head coach of the Mississippi State football team. Joe Judge is 38 years old. Joe Judge has never been a coordinator. He has never been a head coach. He was likely on a path, you know, had the Mississippi State and Giants opportunities not come about, he was on a path to likely becoming an offensive coordinator and then a head coach within the next three years. It is one thing for the New York Giants, you know, you can look at it in a couple of ways here. The first way you could look at it is the New York Giants are a conservative inside-the-box organization as far as the decision-making and hires they make with personnel and staff and whatnot. On the flip side, and the way I kind of look at it, is, or back to the inside the box thing, how the Giants in this circumstance went outside the box with this hire. The way I look at it is, I think that there's an element here, obviously he wasn't the one making all the say, it was John Mara, Steve Tisch, Kevin Abrams, and him. I think there's an element to this hire of Dave Gettleman preserving personnel, decision-making, and control. Because Matt Rule all along was their top guy as far as candidates were concerned. If Matt Rule came in there as the head coach, Matt Rule would have had a say in personnel. And would have interfered or lessened or challenged to an extent the power and wielding that Dave Gettleman uh, would have as the general manager. Joe Judge at 38 years old is not going to challenge the personnel decision-making power of Dave Gettleman. And I think there's an element in this hire of preserving that control for Dave Gettleman who clearly thinks that he knows more than everybody else. 
he is a young head coach who is not going to challenge Dave Gettleman's control of roster and personnel decisions. Now, in you could see through Judge's, you know, we'll call it interesting press conference the other day, you can see why he was such an impressive interview and stood out to the um, Giants ownership and decision-making brass. You know, he's a very, you know, he wants to instill that hard-working, blue-collar, gritty, smash-mouth style of football, and he is stern, and he's to the point, and he is going to be a disciplinarian and take no nonsense. And the way he presents himself and presented himself and spoke, you can understand why he was of such um, impressiveness to those who interviewed him. And you can see why he became such an attractive candidate to them seemingly out of nowhere. And they had to move quickly because if he was their second choice after Rule was gone, Joe Judge was about to become the Mississippi State head coach. Now, the idea of them being this gritty, blue-collar, represent-the-city type of team, all right, let, let's dial that back a little bit. Um, as far as this being a good or a bad hire, I don't think you can sit here and say that one way or the other was a good or a bad hire because I think he's such an unknown Joe Judge that you have to see on-field uh, play and results and have to see his relationship uh, with players and how that develops. But I think what you can say is that there were better options available for the New York Giants and they did not hire that individual. To me, Eric Bieniemy was the perfect individual for this role as the New York Giants head coach. The offensive coordinator for the Kansas City Chiefs, Patrick Mahomes, under Andy Reid, by all means and all accounts is a strong leader and someone who is ready and has been ready to be an NFL head coach. And when your franchise really depends on the development of Daniel Jones as a quarterback and really depends on that offensive side of the ball, having the guy who has learned under Andy Reid, who has been the offensive coordinator for Patrick Mahomes, has a credible amount of experience, Eric Bieniemy checked all the boxes. Strong leader, offensive focus, worked with elite quarterback like Patrick Mahomes, learned under Andy Reid. He was the perfect head coaching hire, in my opinion, as far as the remaining candidates after Matt Rule were still available. And Joe Judge, to me, he's such an unknown. And look, it, it could end up being a great hire. John Harbaugh was the special teams coach before he went to the Ravens, and look how well that has gone. But it, to me, is such an unknown and is such an unnecessary risk that I think the Giants could have avoided and there was a candidate out there that checked all the boxes for what would have been of the most value for this Giants organization in a head coach. So I understand why he was impressive. You All you have to do is watch the press conference and see why those in the room, especially Dave Gettleman, would have been wowed by Joe Judge in an interview. I think he's got to dial that back a little bit. You know, I think depending on who you ask, one, one person would say that was an impressive presser. One person would say that was a disaster of a presser. It's probably somewhere in the middle. It was certainly interesting. And... You can't make a judgment one way or the other. I'm really, really intrigued to see how Joe Judge does with this Giants team. You know, I don't expect them to be that much better than they were this past year. And we'll see what happens. We will see what happens because that's really all you can say because of how much of an unknown Joe Judge is. But Eric Bieniemy was the guy here.
This was the Eric Bieniemy spot. This should have been his job. Moving past the Giants, let's go to Matt Rule and the Carolina Panthers, the best hire of this entire coaching carousel this offseason. This was the best hire that the Carolina Panthers could have possibly made. Now, since David Tepper has taken over, the desire to build a long-term sustainable winner, true greatness, not just a team that succeeds in the short term and can take a shortcut and get good and be kind of good for a decent while. No. A team who has a sustainable, long-term program with great infrastructure, with good talent, with good staff and personnel decision makers. And that focus largely coming on the offensive side of the ball with analytics involved in decision making. And if you want to build such a long-term program, Matt Rule is the perfect guy. Everywhere Matt Rule has gone, Temple football this uh, when he was there this decade, the best some of the best Temple football we've ever seen. The 215 loved Matt Rule. Shout out to the 215. At Baylor, he built that program into a near college football playoff qualifying team. They were almost there this past year. He built a great program. And if you are the Carolina Panthers and you want to build a no shortcuts, not necessarily not necessarily linear um, development into a true long-term sustainable prestige franchise, this is the guy you want at the helm. In this offense, or in this organization focused on offense and progressive decision making and data and analytics in that decision making. I thought, you know, when they fired Ron Rivera, Ron Rivera, who's going to be a good head coach of the Washington Redskins, the Redskins needed more than anything else, someone who's going to reset and establish a new culture. Ron Rivera is perfect for that. Great hire. But when they fired the Carolina Panthers, when they fired Ron Rivera, it was best for both parties. Ron Rivera is a good coach. He was not the guy who fit the vision that David Tepper had for this franchise long term. But when Ron Rivera got fired, I immediately, I put this out on Twitter, at Brad Clear underscore, clear spelled K-L-I-E-R, I immediately put it out there that I thought that Matt Rule, Kevin Stefanski, Eric Bieniemy, Greg Roman, and if they desired to have someone with previous head coaching experience, Mike McCarthy, I looked at those guys and I said, the head coach has to come from this group with the focuses of offense and analytics. Now, they seemingly value Josh McDaniels a lot. I'm not a Josh McDaniels guy. I'll get into that more when I talk about the Browns in a bit. But they got the best candidate out there of all those guys I just mentioned and of the entire offseason of head coaching um, hires. Rule, this is an incredibly attractive job for Matt Rule as well because not only does he come into a situation in which there is already talent in place on both sides of the ball, Matt Rule pretty much gets to have a say and run the entire football operation. You know, GM Marty Herney is in place now. I don't see him being in place long term. I see what ending, uh, what ends up happening is they hire an assistant GM who is groomed to eventually take over for Herney and work alongside Matt Rule for the long term. Matt Rule is going to have a say in personnel decisions. He's going to have a say, significant say, I'm sure, when the Panthers in the next 12 to 30 months find their long-term quarterback of the future. He's going to get to build out his staff. He's going to get to influence the infrastructure of the organization as far as the personnel front office structure, as far as having a sports science department, etc. 
potentially a new practice facility in South Carolina over the border. He's go, he wants to have that sports science department. I'm sure that's going to be a part of it. And as I mentioned, talent on both sides of the ball, and especially on offense with uh, the offensive focus we just mentioned, the best running back in the league in Christian McCaffrey. Again, we can talk about the value of running backs, but he's still a very, very, very talented player. Curtis Samuel, DJ Moore, there's talent there, both sides of the ball. And I think this is highly attractive for Rule to inherit that talent and to really get to have a major say on this organization who, with ownership, clearly is willing to spend a ton of money to lead to success. Just look at the seven-year, $62 million contract. Wants to be a progressive, innovative franchise and build out a long-term sustainable program that makes them one of the revered franchises in the league. And frankly, I'm very excited to see the development of this Carolina Panthers as an organization moving forward. As far as the uh, coordinators that Rule will bring in, you know, they mentioned the Baylor defensive coordinator likely coming over with Rule to Carolina. The offensive coordinator is interesting. There was a report earlier today, potentially about LSU offensive coordinator Joe Brady coming over to Carolina to be the offensive coordinator. Uh, when Wink Martindale, the defensive coordinator of the Ravens, when they talked about him as a potential candidate for teams this offseason, the draw there was that Joe Brady was going to be his offensive coordinator. So that would be a great, great addition to Matt Rule's staff to have Joe Brady as the offensive coordinator. And then lastly, as far as the contract is concerned, Matt Rule is already making $8 million at Baylor. They had to give him seven years, $62 million with some incentives to get him there. It does reset the market for a highly coveted coaching candidate, whether it be from college or an incredible coordinator. But this contract to me is not all that crazy. It was the going rate for an attractive head coaching candidate like Matt Rule. Overall, I can't say enough positive things here. This was a great hire. It perfectly coincides with what David Tepper wants to do for this organization moving forward. I am so, so interested to see in the Panthers or to see how the Panthers um, maneuver, move forward, build out this organization, and ultimately shape their vision for the long term under Matt Rule. The last team here, the sole team that has yet to hire its head coach here as of 6.57 p.m. on Friday, January 10th, the Cleveland Browns. Just interviewed Josh McDaniels today, Kevin Stefanski yesterday, Jim Schwartz earlier in the week. Have already interviewed Robert Sala, uh, Brian Dable, Greg Roman, Eric Bieniemy. Lots of interviews carried out by the Cleveland Browns. And this is a fascinating situation because we know last year, Paul DePodesta, the chief strategy officer, the smart guy in the room here, he wanted Kevin Stefanski in as the head coach for this team last year. As we know, John Dorsey wanted Freddie Kitchens. We know how that went. Paul DePodesta now is in charge or is running the coaching search with owners Jimmy and D Haslam really having the say on who the head coach is. Now, we can look at the Browns over these last couple of years, who, you know, for me, when they brought in Sashi Brown and Paul DePodesta initially, had Andrew Berry in there, I was all in. I was all in. And they amassed so much talent through all the assets acquired. This team is better than what it put out last year. It needs an offensive line on the outside for sure. They need two tackles. But there's too much talent on this team for them to be as bad as they were last year. Now, we can attribute that to the offensive line and John Dorsey missing 
um, in the middle rounds and missing in the early second round in the Austin Corbett pick, um, not necessarily hitting on all of the assets and flexibility that Sashi Brown left him, that's a different story. Story here is this. Paul DePodesta is running this coaching search. Paul DePodesta is the smart guy in the room here. This is the guy whose voice should hold the most weight and really should be the ultimate decider of the coach here. Owner Jimmy Haslam and owner D Haslam. They are going to be the individuals who decide on who the coach is. And all that we have known from these uh, owners in Cleveland is there is no stability, no commitment to a plan. Hugh Jackson's the longest tenured head coach of this decade. Sashi Brown and John Dorsey got about two years each. Can't build anything with such a revolving door and no continuity and stability. It's not possible. And to me, the fact that they're going to be deciding who the head coach is after they went against Dee Podesta's recommendation for Sean McDermott and hired Hugh Jackson and went against the Stefanski recommendation and agreed to bring on Freddie Kitchens as the full-time head coach after being the interim coach. I think what's going to happen here is Josh McDaniels is going to end up being the head coach of the Cleveland Browns. And I think that he is the favorite of ownership in this situation. And with that being said, I do not think it is the right decision. You look at the head coaches out there potentially available to be hired. Personally, I think Kevin Stefanski is a great candidate. Had they not brought back Freddie Kitchens last year and given more weight to Paul DePodesta's voice, Kevin Stefanski would be the head coach of the Cleveland Browns right now. I think Kevin Stefanski would be a good head coach. And I think looking into it as far as the need for a GM also, I think the combination of Kevin Stefanski and former Browns executive who is now with the Eagles, Andrew Berry, being brought back as the GM and having that alignment between Stefanski, Berry, and Deep Podesta, everyone in major decision-making uh, roles and major power roles, all in alignment on the strategy, on the plan. I think that's the best outcome here. Josh McDaniels, if you hire Josh McDaniels, you're basically committing also to Josh McDaniels having a pretty significant say in your personnel and decision-making, and you're also committing to either Dave Ziegler or Nick Casario as your general manager brought in alongside of Josh McDaniels. I don't get the infatuation here with Josh McDaniels as a head coaching candidate. He wasn't a good head coach with the Broncos, was not great being in charge of personnel there, or having a say in personnel there, traded up to 25 to pick Tim Tebow in the first round, the Indianapolis Colts issue in 2018, he accepted the job. They hired a bunch of assistants who went there with the notion that Josh McDaniels was going to be the head coach. And what did he do? He spurned them and left them at the altar. Now, they made out well because they got Frank Reich in there. But still, he wasn't a great head coach before, wasn't great having a personnel say, and took a job, and then after the assistants were hired, changed his mind. Why is this someone who is so incredibly coveted? I don't understand. There are good candidates also available. Kevin Stefanski. Greg Roman's done incredible things with Lamar Jackson this year. I mentioned Eric Bieniemy. He would be great here as well. I don't see why Josh McDaniels is such a slam dunk head coaching candidate in the eyes of so many individuals. He's done great with the Patriots. 
did not do good in his last head coaching job, and then decided against taking a job that he had already accepted. That doesn't seem like a great head coach or leader to me. I really think here it is going to be really interesting as far as who is ultimately hired as the head coach to give insight into whose voice truly has weight within the Browns organization, how much power is involved with the people that the ownership has hired, and how much say ownership is making over, in alignment with, or against those individuals. The Cleveland Browns, to me, with a good head coach and with additions to their exterior on the offensive line, this is a team that can make the playoffs with no issue. There's too much talent there. I don't think that Josh McDaniels is the right guy to take this group there. Now, there were reports earlier they wanted to wrap up and make this head coaching decision tonight or tomorrow, so we'll see what happens. But I fully expect Josh McDaniels to be the head coach of the Cleveland Browns. It should be Kevin Stefanski. We shall see. Very interesting again to see how much weight does Paul DePodesta's voice hold there. Is there any way that there can be alignment within the organization and whose voice really holds weight? Last football topic here, moving away from the head coaches. Let's go to the NFL draft. Tua declared for the draft. He is going to be in the NFL draft this year. This was a no-brainer decision. Someone who has a major injury right now, who will, if he would have stayed in school and came out next year, would not have been drafted over Trevor Lawrence, would have had to compete with Trevor Lawrence and Justin Fields as being the quarterbacks of that draft class in 2021, when this year all he has to compete with is Joe Burrow. I'm not a Justin Herbert guy. To me, even with this injury, I would be very, 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 very surprised if Tua is not a top five pick. I think his floor, his absolute lowest spot he could go here is fifth to the Dolphins. And quite frankly, to me, I think what likely ends up happening is someone trades up to three to ensure that they get Tua with Detroit. I think it would be in Detroit's best interest to trade back. I look at the Dolphins at five. I look at the Chargers and I look at the Panthers all in that range right there. Those are the three teams I look at as the landing spots for Tua. Panthers, again, while Tua is out for this, you could have Tua out for this season, have Cam Newton play one more year for you. The Chargers seemingly are moving on from Phillip Rivers, or at least should. You could have Tua be put in there as your long-term answer. And the Dolphins, the Dolphins process this year really, to me, has been with the entire intention of getting that franchise quarterback in there. Tua is your franchise quarterback answer. Even with this injury, I am still all in on Tua. So to me, it was a no-brainer. He is going to, at worst in my mind, be the fifth pick in the draft, and had he not gone in the draft, had would have faced significant competition next year in a loaded class and would have been one year removed again off of that injury. Get the guaranteed money now, and to me, the Dolphins, the Panthers, and the Chargers... Those are three franchises I think are pretty attractive as far as being the long-term answer for at the quarterback position. Now, there could be other suitors, but to me, those are the three that immediately jump off the page as the teams who would make the most sense to trade up into the top five to get Tua or Tua just getting to the Dolphins at five outright. I don't think that happens. 
I think if the Dolphins want him, they're going to have to move up to three. And I could very well see the Chargers or Panthers moving up to that three spot as well. But to me, again, it was a no-brainer for Tua to declare, and I'm happy he did. And I'm very intrigued to see which team ends up getting him. As I said, I think it will be one of those three. Switching gears here now, moving away from the NFL, let's go to the NBA and let's talk about Andre Drummond and his trade market. So, first off, it is good that the Detroit Pistons recognized the need to, with Blake Griffin, really, this is unfortunate with Blake Griffin, coming off the best year of his career, truly developed so much skill in his game and his body is now falling apart. It's really a shame. But it's good on the Pistons to recognize it's time to tear it down. This team's going nowhere. It's bad use of resources in your team's current state to pay a lot of long-term money to Andre Drummond. So you got to trade him. And it was good that they put out the report with Woj recently, you know, getting out in front of the trade deadline by a month or so and really getting started early on that market. And I think the sooner they can trade Mar- or Drummond, the better. They got to trade him as quick as they can. Now, the initial report when that idea of Drummond being traded came out was linking him to the Atlanta Hawks. The Hawks trading for Andre Drummond makes no sense. First off, you look at it similarly to the Tobias Harris trade with the Sixers. When you trade so much for a player, that player, after the fact, has all the leverage in the world over you. If you're the Atlanta Hawks and you trade a first-round pick and maybe a young player... I'm not advocating for this at all. I'm just saying hypothetically. If that were to happen, if you were to do that and trade for Andre Drummond, you have to re-sign him. And Andre Drummond then possesses a ton of leverage over you and you end up overpaying in terms of per year salary or overall term. The Hawks are kind of at the point now, you know, to me it's it's stunning how bad they have been. I thought that they'd take a step up from what they were last year, which was better than this team they are this year. They are at a point now where, you know, they've amassed all these assets. They don't really have a, you know, surplus of extra first-round picks hanging around as ways to make trades here and there and maneuver. They have the Brooklyn first-round pick next time that they make the playoffs this year, likely. Likely, I think they get in as a 7 or 8 seed. And then maybe have Oklahoma City's first in 2022 maybe, strong maybe there. That's it. That's all that the extent of Atlanta's extra first round picks is at this stage. If they really want Andre Drummond, they won't have, to me, that much competition to outright sign him as a free agent. They won't. There's not a ton of teams with space this offseason. And, you know, to me, I don't see a ton of suitors out there willingly looking at Andre Drummond and really getting all that excited to pay him four years for $120 million. I don't see it. Atlanta also, I think they've also kind of suffered a little bit now in the fact that they consolidated a lot of assets last year in the DeAndre Hunter trade-up where they traded 8 and 17 and I want to say it was 35 and they traded the Cleveland pick for this year that'll turn into two future Cleveland seconds and also took on Solomon Hill's contract, which they later traded to Memphis for Chandler Parsons' contract, along with 
Uh, Plumlee's contract going to Memphis. Memphis later waived him. They consolidated a lot of assets in that trade. They've gotten Kevin Herter in there. They picked Cameron Reddish at 10th overall. They got their guy in DeAndre Hunter. They've kind of, you know, really used up all of the maneuverability and assets that were extra to what their own were. They've really used that all up at this point. And they should be better than they are. And I'm frankly very surprised that they are the level of talent right now that they are. You know, the thing with the Hawks has been for some time, to me, the offense is there. They need to have a focus on defense. Trey Young is a liability defensively, as we know. DeAndre Hunter is a plus defender. John Collins is a decent defender. Kevin Herter is not as good of a defender as I would have liked him to be. Cameron Reddish is a good defender. But there needs to be, obviously, an answer at the five and defense in that role at the five. I think also, looking at Andre Drummond as a free agent option for the Hawks, there's a good amount of bigs available, or set to be available as free agents this offseason. Not even looking at Drummond. Montrez Harrell, Derek Favors, Aaron Baines, Plumley. There are multiple guys out there who would be worthy signings for this Hawks team. And with the Hawks having so much space... You know, if a team wants to offer some of those guys, like an Aaron Baines, let's say a good contending team wants to offer Aaron Baines a mid-level exception, the Hawks can beat that by a small amount and bring him in. And the thing is with these guys is that eventually what's going to happen is someone's not going to have that much of a market, and the Hawks can wait it out and just sign whoever ends up being available last for the cheapest amount. There's no need for the Hawks to... With right now, as we sit here today, the worst team in the NBA, there is no need for them to give up an asset and then ultimately re-sign Andre Drummond for significant money. This feels very ownership pressured, and let's say it comes in as an edict that they must absolutely trade for Andre Drummond at the very, very, very most it should be no more than either the Parsons contract or the Turner contract or the Crab contract and the Brooklyn first. And I'm not advocating for that. That To me, there is no reason that the Hawks should trade for Andre Drummond right now. I'm just saying hypothetically, if an ownership edict comes, that's the most that should be given up. The fact that they're even considering it to me, again, very ownership driven because it does not make any sense to give up an asset for a player who there won't be a ton of competition for, who you can sign outright with no issue the offseason. Now, as far as the team that actually makes sense for Drummond as a trade destination, to me, the team that stands out is the Toronto Raptors. The Gasol expiring and their first round uh, pick this year, I think to me, gets it done. For Detroit, you don't have to take back any long-term salary. You can buy out Gasol and save some money now. And you get a first-round pick in, it's something, it's decent, it's decent, it's not a great first-round pick, it's not the strongest draft, but you're getting a first-round pick in, you're getting something, you're not taking back long-term money, and, you know, I I don't think it's likely, but it's not out of the realm of possibility that Toronto could then re-sign Drummond without um, having to dip into their 21 space, 
which again, I don't think they will do for any reason. You know, should it come to that, I don't think they would re-sign Drummond. But even still, I think this would be a worthy trade for them because I think it would improve them. And at the cost of what would be the 22nd pick in the draft as of now, and upgrading from Gasol to Drummond, I, I think it's a worthy trade for them even if you don't keep Drummond long-term. Because in that 21 summer where they're going to definitely retain the max space that they need to be a player for Giannis or for um, Victor Oladipo or Drew Holiday or Rudy Gobert. I'm not including Kawhi or Paul George in that because they're not going there. Obviously, Kawhi been there, done that. By that point in time, they will have had to give Fred Van Vliet, who's a coming free agent this summer, uh, he'll be on his new contract. OG Anunoby will have to be on his new contract by then as well. So they're going to have to sign some core guys but also are going to have to maintain that max space to be a player for those players I just mentioned. I'm not really sure how much of a market there will end up being as far as a trade is concerned for Andre Drummond. Um, just in a specific, you know, straight-up basketball fit sense, Boston obviously would have the greatest need, but the salary isn't there. They're not, they are not dipping in to their core guys of Marcus Smart or Gordon Hayward to make this trade happen. So they're just out of the picture for me. And outside of Toronto, the only team I really look at as being a sneaky, maybe, even though I'd say unlikely, still being a sneaky potential destination for Andre Drummond, I look at the Los Angeles Clippers, who could use more of a presence at the five as far as size is concerned. Montrez is awesome. I like Zubac. But if you could say, you know, I'm not advocating for this. If I'm the Clippers, I stay as is. But you could make an argument just to add some oomph and to add some size and presence at the five to do a deal with Zubach and Harkless and Jerome Robinson for Drummond. It's not out of the realm of possibility. They're interesting. I don't think it happens. I don't think it's likely, but it does make some sense. Ultimately, though, I do think that Toronto deal is probably the most realistic trade for Drummond. You know, I don't look there there being such a robust market that Detroit has the ability to kind of demand a pretty large return for Drummond. You know, I think a first round pick and either a kind of interesting young player or just expiring salary is really what they're looking at. You know, if you go just team by team, you know, people have mentioned Dallas. I I don't really see it. They traded two first-round picks to the Knicks recently. They already have Dwight Powell in there. I I do not see uh, Dallas being the team for Drummond. I think Toronto makes the most sense. I keep coming back to Toronto. I think the Hawks would be really foolish to make this trade now. And the Clippers are the dark horse here in this situation to trade for Drummond. What's crazy about Drummond, too, he's having a great statistical season. I don't think he necessarily is a hugely impactful individual on either side of the ball. You know, he's a great rebounding presence. He's a good defender, not a great defender. Um, so he's not going to make a monstrous difference on either side of the ball. He's not a plus defender or anything like that. Still a useful player. The point with Drummond, though, he's 26 years old. You would think that he's older. And to me, I just don't know exactly how much value there is in having Andre Drummond on, say, a four-year deal for $120 million. Good player, but is that really, you know, the investment that I want to make such a large portion of my salary cap 
in Andre Drummond. I'm not sure I'd be too crazy about making such an investment. Moving away from Andre Drummond, let's go to the Kevin Love trade situation. Kevin Love obviously frustrated with being at the uh, being with the Cleveland Cavaliers in their state right now of being a young team, just amassing talent, looking to identify keepers and move forward, be a bad team, mass high draft picks. You know, I know he signed the four-year extension for $120 million with the idea that they would remain competitive, but all it took was common sense to realize that was not going to happen and there was no way that the Cavs were going to be able or would be smart to uh, remain a competitive team. It was not possible and was not smart to try to be one. It was not going to happen. And... He can be as frustrated as he wants. He signed the contract. And, you know, he's getting the money. The money is the trade-off for being still with the Cleveland Cavaliers. The money is the trade-off for not having the ability to steer his way towards a specific destination. Now, if the Andre or if the Kevin Love contract, I was about to say Andre Drummond again, if the Kevin Love contract were to expire before the 2021 summer, I think there would be a pretty decent market for Kevin Love. Because we look at Kevin Love, a four who can rebound, who can stretch the floor and shoot threes. He's a valuable player. I think he's a guy who would fit and would be a value towards a decent amount of competitive teams. But the contract, look, the second it was signed, I thought it was a bad decision by the Cavs and was clearly a rebound, save face decision after losing LeBron. And I've always pondered what exactly is the value that that contract holds. Because if you're Cleveland, you're going to want to trade Kevin Love. And in doing so, you're going to want to get value back. You're going to want to get some draft picks or a good young player or multiple of either one. I don't look at Kevin Love as a contract that is able to be traded for good value without taking back long-term money uh, for it. And I don't think that the contract is really a net positive. And I don't think it holds the value that the Cavs envisioned it would having, or it would have when they signed Love to this extension. And again, I think it's good to see this contract finally manifest the value that it has, because again, it's a really been an interesting contract to think of as far as is it a valuable contract that could be traded for a decent return, or is it just a near albatross? that could maybe get you a first or an interesting young player and have to take back some bad money with it, which it probably is closer to the latter. I don't think that there is really a market for Kevin Love as far as a trade is concerned between now and early February. Kevin Love, to me, the contract for a guy in Kevin Love who's in his 30s, who has a demonstrated injury history, you know, it's not a contract paying him $30 million a year for multiple years now off of that initial four for $120 million extension, I don't think that's an appealing contract. I think it's a pretty you know bad contract. And that's a contract to mean a player who is the type of contract and player that the team that can't acquire a star outright in free agency or doesn't necessarily have the assets to trade for a star the mid-tier type of team, not a big market, not a ton going for it. This is the type of player they trade for. You know, this is the team or the player that a team like the Charlotte Hornets trade for or a team like the Phoenix Suns trade for. Charlotte Hornets, you know, they are continuously on this 
desire to remain as close to the eight seed as possible, staying in the middle as long as they can. Never want to be bad. Always want to try to be somewhat competitive. They're not this year, even though Devontae Graham is awesome. Shout out to Devontae Graham. But they have a ton of big expiring salary. Bismack Biombo, Marvin Williams, Michael Kidd-Gilchrist. So if they wanted to manufacture a deal to get Kevin Love, the salary is all there with no issue. I think really the issue here is that, you know, you look at the other types of suitors. Phoenix, you know, would be the type of team. I don't see them really wanting to do this deal. I don't think they, they should. You look at other teams out there, it's really hard. You know, everyone pegged Portland as the team that would trade for Kevin Love. Portland is in no position now to trade draft picks or young players and take back that long-term money of Kevin Love's. So once Portland really has been out of the picture, and quite frankly, even if they were a good team, it would have made way more sense for them to try to trade for Danilo Gallinari than Kevin Love. With Portland out of the picture, there's not a team that you can look at and point to and say, that's a Kevin Love spot. That's a team that should trade for Kevin Love. You know, I've seen Denver being floated a few times. That's a no. Denver does not pay the tax. They're not going to take on a $30 million a year Kevin Love. No, don't even start with that. That is not a possibility. So to me, I don't see a match. I really don't. If I really have to stretch it, Charlotte, just because they have so much expiring money and are not a free agent destination, are not a big market, and are a team that is continuously on this fight for relevancy as far as staying as close to the playoff picture as possible, ultimately staying in the middle and going nowhere. So, I think all this talk about who's going to deal for Kevin Love, who's going to get Kevin Love, Kevin Love is so frustrated, this contract, extending um, into the summer of 21, taking away space from teams if they were to trade for him, and the fact that it has so many years on it, you know, if Kevin Love were a free agent right now, would you sign him for three years at $90 million? I don't think you would. And I think for Kevin Love, yes, it's frustrating as a veteran with a lot of talent to have to play on a young team with two ball-dominant non-passing point guards, um, and three if we include Kevin Porter Jr., who's actually been pretty good. But I get that it's frustrating, but his contract makes him really hard to trade. And even if there was a trade out there, I don't think Cleveland is going to really get near the return that they would want or had envisioned. Because... To me, it looks like either one of two trades. You get a bunch of expiring money back and a heavily protected draft pick, or you take back bad money and get a draft pick and a kind of interesting young player. And to me also, this isn't necessarily the easiest in-season trade. And again, it's just really hard to see a market. And as we heard on the Hoop Collective with Brian Windhorst recently, you know, from what he's hearing, there really isn't that much movement or any market really going at all for Kevin Love right now. And Kevin Love's contract, even though he's been productive, is one of the worst in the NBA. And it was interesting for me for all this time to try to deliberate what exactly was the value of Kevin Love's contract. And now that it is time to manifest that value and see what it actually is, it really is closer to an albatross than it is to a contract that brings value to a team that trades for him. Like I said, if this contract was this year and next year and that was it, teams would be lining up to trade for Kevin Love. And I think Cleveland would be able to get 
somewhat better of a return. But to me, I just think that they're stuck together. And I think they're going to remain stuck together until either he is in the last year of that contract, it is after the summer of 21, or until Cleveland just gets to the point where they just value getting him out of there and getting off of his money more than they do getting value back in a trade return for Kevin Love. And now lastly here, Joel Embiid just went under just underwent surgery today uh, for the torn ligament in his left hand. Um, his finger was grotesquely dislocated. Last night, the Sixers looked excellent against the Celtics. Josh Richardson had a great game. Al Horford looked like Al Horford. You know, it's a shocker. You play a center at the five and not next to another center, and they look good. Um, the fit never really made sense for me as far as Horford and Embiid. I didn't. I was not a fan of the signing. Then I kind of talked myself into it, and then I realized again there's just not a logical fit between the two. Ben Simmons looks excellent last night. I know people harp on the shooting, but this guy is one of the best five to ten defenders in the entire NBA right now. He is switchable onto any position. He's incredibly versatile. He's long. He's athletic. He's a menace. He gets steals. He wreaks havoc on the defensive side of the ball. Disrupting passing lanes. Man-to-man defense. The guy is great. And I know people like to harp on the shooting. The guy is one of the 25 best players in the NBA and is an all-star without that shooting ability. If anything, his free throw shooting is more important to develop than his three-point shooting. But anyway, the Sixers looked great yesterday. The real thing for the Sixers here is this. You know, they've been a positive net rating team with them beat off the floor with Simmons and Horford playing. I don't, I'm not concerned for them as far as um, their record drastically being negatively affected. Uh, My concern though is that they just have to remain on a pace where they can be able to challenge to get that second seed in the East because the two seed in the East is going to get Orlando or Brooklyn in the first round. The three seed's probably getting Toronto or Indiana. And the four seed is probably getting Boston, Toronto, or Indiana. Or Miami. Miami right now is in that two seed spot. Here at 7.30pm on Friday, January 10th. It is critically important to get that second seed, especially for the Sixers, and for anyone really, because if you don't, and you end up in that four or five spot, or you end up on the wrong side of the bracket, and you have the Milwaukee Bucks in the second round. And to me, the Sixers kind of have the making of a team who, even though at their best, they are definitely the second best team in the East, they have the tendency to lose games that they should win as far as just losing games to not good teams and losing games that they should be winning with no issue, you know, losing to teams like Orlando, things of that nature. I think the Sixers, to me, kind of have the making, again, even though they are the second best team in the East, when everything is going right, I think they have the makings, to me, of a team that is going to lose in the second round of the playoffs. I think for them, what's going to probably happen is I don't think they're going to get that two seed. I think they're going to be in a position where they'll end up in that four or five spot and they'll beat Toronto or Indiana in the first round. And then they'll have to play Milwaukee in the second round. And even though 
The Sixers are built. This team, the Sixers, they match up so well with the Milwaukee Bucks, destroy them on Christmas. It's a daunting task to have to beat Giannis four out of seven times with this talented Bucks team. But as far as the Embiid injury is concerned, you know, I think there's a great point made where it was stated that, you know, Embiid being out doesn't necessarily solve any of the Sixers' issues because the issues at play are when they have all of these guys in there together at once and figuring out how to best maximize each of his skills and talent and to figure out the overall fit. And, you know, the Sixers really don't have a way to make to easily make a trade to add a ball-handling scorer in the backcourt or to add a 3-and-D wing. You know, we look at salary. They made a mistake, as I said before, in not re-signing TJ McConnell using his bird rights at like a $7, $8 million salary and instead signing Raul Neto, who has really been a non-factor for them. They now, if they really want to make a trade, it's really just Mike Scott and Zaire Smith. Like, that's the package for this team to make a trade. And I think there's lots of interesting options. I just think it's going to be very difficult for them to go out there and really be able to be a player in the trade market because they're limited in terms of the salary that they can give up because really the only players making or the only package that they can put out there for substantial salary to bring a player back, it's Mike Scott and Zaire Smith. That's it. So... I'm interested to see how the Sixers maneuver without Embiid. I think Simmons is going to absolutely thrive, and I think we'll see an Al Horford more similar to that of which we saw with Boston in the past few years. And I think the Sixers will be relatively okay. Will they be as good as when they have Embiid? Obviously not. Of course not. Embiid is incredible. Has an incredible impact on this team. But I don't think they will fall off too much. And ultimately... I don't think that this is necessarily a way for them to solve their issues because, again, as I said, the issues come when you're trying to fig- uh, figure out the fit between all of these parts that really, you know, Simmons, Embiid, Horford, Richardson, Harris, there's not enough shooting. We've known that all this time. It- it's just a weird mix of incredible size and defense, the Monstars, really, without enough shooting. With that, That will conclude this episode here of After the Final Whistle. Again, I am your host, Brad Clear. Be sure to check back here on Apple Podcasts or Podcast.com for more episodes of After the Final Whistle. You can follow me on Twitter at BradClear underscore clear spelled K-L-I-E-R. Shout out to you, the listener. And as always, shout out to the Sixers. And goodbye and good night.